Hey everyone, you are listening to Film Philosophy, where we break down the philosophies, concepts, and structures of filmmaking in the American film industry. We are filmmakers Tiffany Francis, Andrew Coles, and Nzinga Murray. Film Philosophy is brought to you by The Mission Entertainment. Today's episode features Andrew Coles, and our topic that we are tackling is systemic structures. To give a little intro, Andrew is an activist, manager, producer, curator, and DJ. And to add to all of that, he serves as the founder and CEO of The Mission Entertainment. Andrew graduated from Harvard with a degree in African-American studies. He worked at CAA, Overbrook Entertainment, Scott Rudin Productions, and then in 2013 created The Mission Entertainment. He founded this company with the purpose and philosophical foundation of blending his passions for storytelling and social justice advocacy through working in the entertainment industry, helping to create images that are truly representative of the world that we live in. The Mission Entertainment's first feature was Queen and Slim by Melina Masukas and on Television 20s on BET. I specifically chose Andrew for this topic of systemic structures because Andrew not only has an incredible passion for storytelling, and understands on all levels how the entertainment system works. He also is a huge advocate for social justice within our industry. In addition to all of that, he can also speak with a level of intelligence, knowledge, and passion on this subject matter that honestly just comes out of him naturally in a way that I envy, but also just I really enjoy hearing him talk. I promise you, you will be inspired. And without further ado, here is Andrew Colts. Hey, Tiffany. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm so grateful to be your guest and conversation partner in this topic. I think it's something that as we sit here, I realize I spent a lot of years sort of talking to friends and colleagues and people about, but I think this is a a new venue and a new way to unpack some of these ideas. And so I'm just, I'm really excited to be here with you. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you and be a partner for this podcast as well. It's just a perfect pairing and collaboration. So Andrew, if you can talk about the systemic structures of Hollywood, I would love to ask you kind of what you think the historical backstory of how it came to be. I'll start with a with a personal anecdote to talk about how I really started unpacking and thinking about the ways in which Hollywood and the entertainment industry has been organized. And it came like many discoveries from a very personal place. I am a black man born in America, and my first exposure to Hollywood was as a kid, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of the movies and the TV shows that me and my brothers would watch growing up. And I think it struck me at an early age that it was very rare that I saw myself or my brothers or my family or people that looked like us represented in the stories that we were seeing. You know, I loved Star Wars as a kid. And so it made me really excited in The Empire Strikes Back when Lando shows up. And I was like, oh, finally, (laughs) like here is someone who looks like me in this universe. And yes, we have spaceships that are flying around and we've got lightsabers and we've got blasters and we've got people being frozen in carbonite and all of these things. But it always struck me that when I imagined myself as my favorite heroes, I oftentimes had to imagine myself in a body that looked different than my own. And that was really difficult as a kid because I think so often when we were growing up, we were looking for affirmation that we are okay, that we are normal, that we belong, that there is value to our lives. And so I just remember as a kid really struggling with this fact of all of my screen heroes or the majority of my screen heroes were white men. You know, the rise of Will Smith in the 90s was such a critical inflection point for me And I know countless other, you know, not only black kids, but other kids Mm -hmm. of color where it was like, oh, finally, there's someone who can be a hero, who can be a lead, who looks like me, who who moves like me, who talks like me. And so I'll always remember this. It was when I was about in the eighth grade that I really started to understand that there was a system that created these images that I was seeing. And to Mm -hmm. peel back a little bit of the edge of, well, what's underneath, what's underneath this machinery? What's operating? What's happening? How do these images come to be? And it was when watching Spike Lee's movie, Bamboozled. For those who haven't seen Bamboozled, it is a very hard satire about the entertainment industry. In it, 
Damon Wayans plays a TV executive and he is a black face in a sea of white colleagues. And he gets increasingly charged with finding black stuff for his employer to produce. And so finally being tired of being pigeonholed into this box of being the black executive, he decides to in some ways flip the finger to the system and he's like, okay, you want a black show? I'm going to give you a modern day minstrel show. And so for those who are aware of the history of minstrelsy in America, and particularly in the early days of vaudeville and the early days of Hollywood, it's some of the most offensive and disgusting imagery that Hollywood has ever created. Like it is Mm -hmm. up there with Mickey Rooney's yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is, you know, yellow face minstrelsy. Like it is a really ugly chapter in our industry. And Spike Lee's Bamboozled really lays this to bear. But what I found most impactful of that movie is there's a montage at the end of it that's about three to four minutes. And it's set to this beautiful Terrence Blanchard song. And it's basically a montage that are all the depictions of black people within the history of Hollywood. So starting with Al Jolson and the jazz singer and Minstrel C, Shirley Temple dancing with one of her butlers, Amos and Andy, all throughout the realm. And I remember... I remember the first time that I saw this montage. I had never in my life felt such a combination of anger and sadness as I did when I watched that montage. And I think the recognition that the reason that not only I didn't see myself in stories, but also the images and reflections that I saw of black people and of people that looked like me and of people who were others were gross distortions. Absolutely. And recognizing that the reason that Sometimes my mother would answer the door to our home and people would assume that she was a maid or would assume that my father was in the music industry or played professional sports because of the neighborhoods that we lived in. Because what other professions could a black man have that would allow him to move into a neighborhood like the ones we grew up in? My dad's a cardiologist by training, moved into the pharmaceutical and biotech field. But I realized the burden of assumptions that were placed on me and my family And recognizing that it was because many people didn't have interactions with black people. Many white people didn't have interactions with black people in their day-to-day lives. And the images they saw of black people were those that were coming out of Hollywood. And so in a lot of ways, in some ways, it was an instinct of self-preservation to understand why do people look at me in the way that they do? Why do people believe the things that they do about black people? Where do these images come from? And I think in watching Bamboozled and understanding, it's like, oh, there are executives that have these conversations about what gets programmed. There are producers that guide the storylines that we see that decide who gets cast. It wasn't by accident. Like Mm -hmm. these things weren't happening by accident. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, no, all the white people really love movies and storytelling and people of color don't. Something more was happening. And so I think from that point, I've always interrogated the process of image making within American culture and within the socio-political context that we all live in, in understanding it's like America was a country that was founded on genocide. It was a company that built up its wealth through the institutional and systemic degradation of black bodies and the exploitation of those bodies for labor. It stands to reason then that a uniquely American institution like Hollywood might have some of those kinks and problems that the country was born with inherent in it. And so throughout high school and college, I think as someone who loves storytelling, as someone who loves movies, I really set out on this investigation of what's happening underneath the hood and why are things the way that they are. So that's the very personal sort of outlay of why I started asking these questions. Yeah, I think it's important to ask those questions, you know, because I think like just normal education. And and when I mean normal, I just mean like regular public high school education doesn't necessarily dive deep into this. So I think this is why I'm so happy that you're explaining this and, and thanks so much for also bringing your personal take on it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I now realize it's like I've spent, <laughs> I have spent a good portion of my life asking these questions and I have spent the last 14, almost 15 years of my life trying to pursue a career in entertainment and pursuing a path where, you know, as you talked about, the goal of the mission entertainment is really to act as an intervention in our industry and to ask questions, to take a point of view and to say, there are more people who have stories that are worth telling. There are more storytellers that have stories that people need and want to hear. 
than our industry is necessarily built to recognize, incubate, and support. And so we need to build new pipelines and we need to revamp and reestablish the pipelines that have existed to make sure that they are wide enough so that all types of people can pass through. And I think we've seen it. It's something that we've seen in our industry over the last, we'll call it the last decade. But I think the explosion of stories that are being led by folks of color, that are being led by queer folks, that are being led by female filmmakers, that are being led by historically underrepresented communities. And again, if we want to talk in the bottom line of our industry, the box office that goes along with it. If we want to talk at the very top echelons of Hollywood, like the Fast and the Furious franchise is one of the most successful film franchises of all time. It Mm -hmm. is also one of the most diverse film franchises of all time. I do not think you can separate those things out. If you Mm. think about what it is to have a bevy of stars from across the world and from different ethnic backgrounds, all participating in an exercise of, yes, taking cars into space and all of the things that happen in that franchise, there's a wide audience that's drawn from there. And so in order to understand sort of where we are in this current moment, it bears investigating, like, how did we get here? And where did these things start? And where did this begin? Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of years sort of in academic study, studying early Hollywood, having an understanding of how is our industry built? How did it run for many years in sort of its formative years? What are the changes that we've seen in those intervening years? And what does that mean for the future that we are looking at? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what you're hinting at is that there is a parallel of American history and film history and how it's been structured, right, within its very system. So I guess, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's a couple interesting sort of inflection points in early Hollywood that I like to point to. I think in talking about the connection between American history and Hollywood history, I think let's look at sort of what many people credit as the first and most prominent feature film that really revolutionized, you know, what we understand modern filmmaking as. And I think many people credit that rightly as D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. For those who don't know, The Birth of a Nation is based on a book called The Klansman. And it's basically a telling of the events that led up to the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War from the perspective and points of view of one Southern family. This Southern family sends sons off to fight in the Confederacy. There's a lot that happens in this movie. People talk about, oh, D.W. Griffith and, you know, the innovations and filmmaking, all of this. But what I attribute it most for is it's incredibly racist. Yeah, it's insanely racist. It's staggeringly racist. I remember first watching it in a class in college. I was so disturbed. I was so blown away. I was just like, oh, man, they really... Went there. I mean, one of the climactic scenes is there is a roving black brute who, of course, is being played by a white man in blackface who is chasing a virginal young white woman through the woods, ostensibly to rape her. He chases her to the edge of a cliff and she throws herself off of the cliff and kills herself rather than being raped and ravaged by this black brute. This then inspires, and if I'm misquoting this movie, I don't care because D.W. Griffith can spin in his grave. (laughs) You know, her brothers basically ride off and they are like, you know, our sister's honor was threatened and now she's dead because of this black rapist. Like, we're going to find the guy. And so you basically watch the formation of the Ku Klux Klan. And what I find so fascinating and I and for anyone who says like films don't matter, there's no power in the storytelling, this, this and that, like, here's the counterexample that I'll give. That movie came out in 1915. The then sitting U.S. president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, screened that movie at the White House and said, this is history writ in lightning. Woodrow Wilson had his own problems. That's for another conversation. But what we witnessed was a resurgence of the KKK. And I think this is just really key to note. It's like the first anti-terrorism laws that were passed in the United States were in 1871 and were specifically to quell the rise of what was then the first iteration of the KKK. Those laws were very effective, and over the intervening decades from 1871 up into the early 1900s, the KKK was on decline. The membership, you know, dwindled. It was after Birth of a Nation came out that we saw a resurgence in Klan membership numbers, and it led to, within a decade, several thousand Klan members marching in open, with their hoods open, you know, with their faces shown proudly in their garb in the streets of Washington, D.C. I think 
films and I think Hollywood, we have the opportunity to imagine possibilities of where we can go or to reify where we have been. And when we, in some ways, we think about the political polarity that we're currently witnessing in our country, I think it's a really interesting and important time for our industry to figure out who we want to be in this next century. If we are the industry that is responsible for creating a product that led to the resurgence of the KKK, and if we think about the decades of terror that the KKK reigned in the Jim Crow South and across America, we're dealing with very, with very powerful images, and there's a lot that our industry can do. So I think about Birth of a Nation in early Hollywood and just that being, again, the connection of American history, but also recognizing is like we are in a commercial artisan industry. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, Hollywood is about making art, but Hollywood is a commercial enterprise. It always has been and it always will be. And so I think that's where we get into the really interesting piece of Hollywood is a commercial enterprise. Who is it trying to sell its product to? And so if we think about early Hollywood and who the audience was, if we think about the segregation that was happening in that time and that a lot of folks of color couldn't get into Nickelodeons because they weren't places for them. It really gets into this idea of, well, in its early configuration, who was Hollywood trying to sell to? And who does Hollywood see as its market? And who is Hollywood catering to in the stories that it tells? And so I think the commercial and financial aspects of this equation can't be overlooked because Mm -hmm. Hollywood does not create in a vacuum. Hollywood creates to sell to American audiences. They create to make products that then brands can leverage advertisements against. So in a lot of ways, our industry is trying to serve two masters in some ways. If you, if you take a higher look at what art can be and a view that art can touch minds, it can touch people's souls, it can help people gain a different understanding of who they are in the world and help them see communities that they may not have contact with, but help them recognize the humanity in people that are very different from themselves. There's a very powerful thing that our industry can do. Simultaneously, our industry is an incredible economic driver. America's greatest export, you know, for the last many decades has been our stories, our images, our product, our content. And so in that, I think one of the things that I always found interesting in early Hollywood was there was always a mindfulness of who the audience was and how to make the most money. And so one of the things that I found really interesting was there was a period of time where in the early 1920s, there was a lot of backlash against the entertainment industry. And there were a lot of folks, you know, similar to the temperance movement that led to prohibition, but there was a cultural backlash against the stories that Hollywood was telling. There's a lot of gangster stories. There's a lot of sex. There's a lot of drugs. There was a lot of crime. And there were a lot of organizations who came and said, this content that Hollywood is putting out is leading to the moral decline of our youth. It's leading to the moral decay in our society we need to do something about it. And so there was a lot of lobbying for the United States government to censor Hollywood and to say, these are the stories that you can tell. These are the stories that you can't tell. And so basically what Hollywood did, and this is, again, in the 1920s, we were in the early days of the studio system. So we had a bunch of different studio heads who were running their own kingdoms and building their own empires. All of those heads of the studios got together and they're like, look, our money is going to get messed up if we start being censored and if the government tells us what we can and cannot do. So there was a lawsuit that tried to establish that Hollywood is protected under the First Amendment rights of free speech. But then the studio heads went a step further and they instituted and they built the Hollywood Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code, named after Will Hayes, who was the code commissioner from the early 1920s until about 1945. And so what the production code did was basically it was Hollywood's self-regulation. And they basically built a manual. And you can find this manual, it exists, but it basically said, here's what you can show in Hollywood movies and here's what you can't show. And so basically Hollywood self-censored in order to avoid censorship from the government in order to keep the money flowing. And so if you go back and look at the Hollywood production code, and I studied this for my senior thesis in college, it lays out some very specific prescriptions of what you can and cannot show. So you cannot show someone benefiting from a life of crime. So if you think about the early gangster movies in the late 20s and 1930s, something like White Heat dies at the end of it. He does not get Mm. away with his crimes. He does not make money. He does not benefit from a life of crime. 
And that is not necessarily in the story mandates. That is not necessarily in the character work. Like that is an outside imposition from Mm. the Hollywood production code office to say you can show these things and you can't show these other things. Now, here's how they enforced it. So your movie would go through reviews with the Hollywood production code office and they would Mm -hmm. give you script notes that were not based on, well, this character doesn't make sense or this is not be like, look, this guy needs to die because he's a criminal. You can't show these people in a bed together because they're not a married couple. You can't show a mixed race person because any depiction of miscegenation, which is (laughs) the romantic Mm -hmm. intermingling between two races, is explicitly forbidden. And so if we think about that erasure, where it's like you can't show mixed race people because that would imply that there was some race mixing that happened. And we're trying in some ways to keep the phenotypical guidelines of who is a white American and who is not. And the danger that mixed race people pose to that in terms of being able to pass. It's Mm -hmm. really it's really fascinating to think of the interventions that the Hollywood system. And again, this is collusion between all the studio heads Mm -hmm. put into what we understand as the birth of our industry. So the Hollywood production code was in effect from about 1921 to about 1957 in full force. And so you would send your script into the Hollywood production code office, they would give you notes on it, but then they would also do notes on cuts. And so if your movie passed the Hollywood production code office, they would give it a stamp. And you can actually, if you go back and look at movies of the era, you can see the stamp in the opening credits. But they gave a stamp of approval that basically says, this movie has been approved by the Hollywood Production Code Office. Now, there's a financial incentive in this because in order to play in the first run theaters that existed at the time, so we would think of these as our modern day AMC, Regal, Lowe's, you know, sort of the big theater chains. In order for it to run in the big theater chains at the time, you had to have this stamp of approval. If your movie didn't have the stamp of approval, they wouldn't book it in those theaters. And so there was a financial incentive to hew towards the production code office and what they dictated people could show. But if we think about the chilling effect that this had on the free expression of art, if we think about the effect that it had on the movies that came out in that era, for me, it's really the first big example of the ways in which the system operates and the ways in which the combined power and might of studio heads and of the structure at large can affect, again, the stories that are told and who is seen as worthy of being included in those stories. I don't know that enough people in our industry who are currently making films know about sort of this aspect of early Hollywood and the Mm -hmm. ways in which it really impacted what stories were told. And again, the moods and I think opinions and beliefs of the nation, because Mm -hmm. if a nation is not seeing interracial relationships, if they're not seeing mixed race people, if they're not seeing these things, there's a lack of exposure, there's an erasure. So if we think about all of the actors, if we think about all of the actresses, if we think about all the storytellers who might've wanted to tell a story about their family or their lineage or wanted to be a movie star, You know, there were a lot of people who were excluded from, you know, the process because of the dictates of the production code. So I find it fascinating and I love talking about it because we can trace a line from Birth of a Nation to the Hollywood production code to the fall of the Hollywood production code, you know, late 50s, early 60s. So if we think about the revolution in storytelling that happened in the 60s and early 70s, After the production code was loosened, after storytellers were able to depict sex, depict interracial relationships, to depict someone being in a life of crime and actually succeeding. Hollywood has always put its fingers on the scale of what stories make it out and what stories are told, because I think there's always been the recognition that Hollywood can shape the attitudes and cultures, not just of this country, but of people across the world. Oh, thanks so much for laying that out for us, Andrew. I feel very blessed to be able to like hear you talk about this because, you know, I've taken a lot of film history classes. That's kind of what got me into filmmaking in the first place. But I don't think I knew specifically about that production code thing. And I think that is actually so interesting to just pinpoint that specific idea and see how it has affected Hollywood and and how it's kind of built that system moving forward. And that being said, I do want to turn it to the present. And I was curious, like, what do you think are the long-term effects that this history has brought to the table? For instance, like, what does it mean to be 
systemic in Hollywood today in our industries right now? I think it's really interesting because when we think about the legacy of early Hollywood and how things began and where we find ourselves in this moment, I'm very taken by the fact that there is, at least in the last, you know, almost 15 years that I've been working in the industry and even longer that I've been studying it, there's always this question of like, oh, well, we just don't know where to find people. We don't know where the storytellers are. We don't know, you know, we don't know where to find the folks of color. Like, you know, yeah, we're open and we're liberal and we want to tell stories. But in some ways, there's (laughs) been a lot of shrugging of shoulders and sort of throwing hands in the air and being like, we wish we could solve this problem, but we don't know how. What I really love to take from the early example of the Hollywood production code is our industry is capable of meaningful intervention. All of the studio heads back in the 1920s, they all got together and they're like, look, we need to build the Hollywood production code so our money doesn't get messed up by government censorship. I look at another example that feels similar is if we think about what has recently happened with the Golden Globes and we think about all the studios and all the streamers and everyone who's like, we're not going to participate in the Golden Globes. We're not going to send our products. We're, we're going to pull out. We're not going to be sponsors. We're not going to air it like until the Golden Globes figures out their diversity issues. Mm. And it's like, so wait a minute, you're telling me that all of you can get together and decide to take punitive or corrective action when you see that something is wrong. So all of this, we don't know how to fix it or we don't know how to solve it that has existed in the last several decades in terms of talking about the underrepresentation of key communities in the American fabric Mm -hmm. feels weak to me (laughs) because I saw what y'all did with the Golden Globes, right? Like y'all all all rallied around. You're like, we're going to take a stance. And so our industry has shown that it can act in concert, that when it identifies a problem, it can rally and individual stakeholders who may be competitors can find common ground to push forward progress. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I do want to talk about solutions and ideas in just a little bit, but I think I'm, I'm really wondering when people haven't done these things, like how are the, the systemic problems sort of perpetuated now, I guess. Yeah. 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 To, to zero in. So I think our industry is very relationship based. Uh, And so if you think about, It's not a meritocracy that we work in. So it's not the best people getting the jobs, the best stories being told. Like there is another decision-making process that goes on. I think one that we can point to, you know, is something that folks have heard, may have heard about a lot, but is sort of issues around casting. And we've had this on projects that we've worked on at the mission where it's like, hey, we love this story. This is really great. But the lead character is a black man. Like, what if we made him white? How would that feel? Okay, well, okay, the lead character Mm -hmm. has to be black. What if we made it a two-hander and we gave him a partner who was white? What if we did that? (laughs) The idea, and Will Smith talked about this most famously, you know, around the release of Hitch in 2005. He was doing an international press tour and he was basically talking about why they cast Eva Mendes as his love interest. And the conventional wisdom that, you know, has lived in Hollywood for so long has been black movies don't travel internationally. I think in some ways that was proven to be false with Black Panther. You know, I think diverse movies can travel if we look at the Fast franchise, if we think about, you know, other things. But for a long time, there was this idea, black movies don't travel internationally. So Will Smith basically talked, he's like, look, they cast Eva Mendes because she's Latina. Mm -hmm. Because if she was going to be my love interest, if it was a black woman, it would have been a black movie. And the execs at Sony were like, this movie won't travel internationally. Mm -hmm. If they cast a white woman, it would be an interracial relationship. And they believe that domestic audiences didn't want to see an interracial relationship. Wow. And so I remember reading that and I think it was just another sort of data point in my understanding of how Hollywood works and being like, okay, so even when we have a project and we have a story, like there are all of these considerations that are going on in the background. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to note that the first interracial relationship that Will Smith had on screen was with Margot Robbie in Focus in 2015, I believe. So before that, if you think again from a story like, why didn't he end up with Bridget Moynihan at the end of iRobot? Why didn't he end up with Taya Leone at the end of Bad Boys when they had all this chemistry? Why didn't he end up with Linda Fiorentino at the end of <laughs> Men in Black? They just became platonic partners. And even if you think about, and I did a deep dive on this, if you look at the differences between the Hancock theatrical cut and the Hancock director's cut, there is a kiss that Will Smith and Charlize Theron share in the director's cut that was excised from the theatrical cut. And oh, if wow. you watch it from a filmmaking perspective, 
you're like, oh, they cut out a couple frames before their lips touched. So you never actually see them kiss. Where in the director's cut, you actually see them lip lock like you see people kiss in a Hollywood movie. Having a real romantic moment, yeah. And so even for that, I I realized like there are all these levels of intervention, whether it is in casting, whether it is in the editing, whether it is in how things are marketed. So if you think about, you know, the 12 Years a Slave poster, and there was a controversy around how it was marketed in Italy, where you had Brad Pitt prominently on the poster, even though he's in the movie for under 15 minutes, say. Mm -hmm. So I think in that is just like these pieces are still operating. And again, at the end of the day, our industry is really concerned with making the most money. And I think in a lot of ways, the way you make the most money is to appeal to the broadest audience possible. And so if we think about the demographics of America, the broadest audience in America is white people. And so in some ways, so much of the content is built shaped, edited, marketed, and pushed out to the perspective of capturing the white audience. That piece is really interesting just to think about is like, it's again, it's not something that has stopped in Hollywood. There is still intervention that is happening. There is still a pipeline of talent that is pushed. There are folks that are not necessarily Mm -hmm. in the running. Like if we think about all of the controversy of Idris Elba being considered for James Bond and all of the people who are like, ah, can you have a black Bond? You know, can we do this? And like, we have to deal with the underlying cultural attitudes of this country and the world in mm-hmm. its misogyny, in its racism, you know, in its homophobia, in terms of thinking about how these stories are shaped. So this art is not created in a vacuum. There is an entire framework that is built to make products that come out of Hollywood as commercial as they can be. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. commerciality as seen as white and mainstream and folks of color are really trying to find the ways in which we can fit into that framework and tell our stories. So does that hit the mark in some ways? Yeah, definitely. I mean, also, it's just interesting because it's it's not just the money, though. It's also I think that things haven't been proven. Right. It took Mm -hmm. a long time to prove that Black Panther a black movie, a studio movie could be successful because Mm -hmm. it wasn't proven before because that was a system in which Hollywood has been founded on. So when things aren't proven and when things are built upon the fact that everyone has to make money, then those kind of concepts and perceptions can just kind of keep on being perpetuated when it hasn't been proven. And that's kind of a lot of, I think, the real problems also lies as well. Yeah. Well, it's it's a funny thing. It's like you're in a deadly catch-22 because they're like, well, we can't do it because it's never been proven. And we're never going to prove it because you can't do it because it's never been proven. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> exactly. it's in those ways where it's like, so how do we how do we get out of this? How do we prove it? And it's like it's why, you know, movies like Black Panther, I think bridesmaids in terms of female filmmakers and the idea mm-hmm. is like, yes, you can sell movies to women. Like, yes, you can make a comedy that is about women that men love and want to see. Mm -hmm. Like, I love Bridesmaids. But I remember people being (laughs) so shocked when Bridesmaids came out and they're like, oh, it's so successful. How is like, it's a great movie. Right. And like, yes, it's about female friendships. And yes, it's about a bridal party and all of this. But like, it's a great movie. And I think in a lot of ways, because straight white men have controlled the levers of this industry since its inception. And continue to, if we think about Mm -hmm. the heads of studios, the heads of streamers, like who is at the top of the pyramid in terms of decision making, everything is run through a filter that at the end of the day, the last decision maker in most cases in Hollywood is a white man. There are exceptions, but by and large, this has been the history of our industry. Yeah. So. And that's unfortunate, you know, I mean, there's so many different colors I feel like we can explore not necessarily literally, but figuratively, you know, there's a lot of different parts of the rainbow that we should definitely be utilizing. That being said, I I really wanted to ask you about what you think, you've touched upon this a little bit, what you think are solutions and ideas for change. I really believe in this podcast also having a bit of an action plan, you know, for those who are listening and, you know, whether you're someone with real power in an industry, which I hope you are, or if you're just, you know, someone on the grassroots, local level, budding filmmaker, at least we can propose solutions for the long term. What do you think are real actionable things 
that people can do to change? Well, I think first and foremost, and I never shy away from this, and it's something in a lot of ways, the burden is oftentimes put on those who have not been historically franchised, those who have been underrepresented. Burden is put on them. And in some ways, I want to flip the question. is like, it's the responsibility of those who are in power to figure out how they want to build a more inclusive industry. Like we mm-hmm. are artists, we are storytellers, but ultimately what we can control is not the means and methods of production in terms of the wider industry sense, but the stories that we're telling and where we're drawing from authentically. So I think for those who are in power and those who are currently in positions of gatekeeping you know, or decision-making power, it's really incumbent upon them to take a hard look at who's sitting around the table in their meetings, what points of view they're welcoming into their conversations. And again, having worked in historically white Hollywood institutions, there is a benefit to the stories that we will be able to tell if more people are allowed to be at the table. So speaking to those folks like the same intervention that was taken with the Golden Globes, why don't you take that sort of intervention and apply it to the staggering lack of diversity that is represented upon working filmmakers and storytellers? Why don't you put together an action plan where it is, yeah, all of the studios and all the streamers getting together to put into a fund and say, hey, Warner Brothers Discovery is going to put $10 million into this fund. Netflix is going to put $10 million into this fund. Apple is going to put $10 million into this fund. Have it be run by an independent third party that is building community for storytellers and for advocates. Because I think one of the things that is often underlooked is for as many wonderful storytellers and filmmakers as there are from underrepresented communities, we have to have executives and agents and managers and producers who are also coming from those underrepresented communities. Because Mm -hmm. we need people who are able to be in these boardrooms, in these conversations, in these meetings and saying, we should sign this person. We should work with this person. We should help this project get off the ground. There is value. There is merit. I grew up in this community. I know there is a need. I know there is desire. How can you make movies for the world? Up until the early 2000s, we were making movies broadly for America. And then sometimes the world would tap in. Now that the global (laughs) box office ratio has shifted, And we are thinking about the global audience. How can you make movies for the world if you are stuck in your own bubble? And so I think that's like, how do you Mm -hmm. know what people want? How do you know what people need? Like LA is a bubble unto itself. Like LA is not America. LA is not the world. So it's like (laughs) folks in decision-making power have to get out of their own bubbles. I think the biggest thing in the world that I'd like to say, because in some ways it's like those people have to sort themselves out. We've been crying into the wind for how many decades? Like across the board. That's on them. Who I really want to speak to right now is like, yo, if you are an emerging filmmaker, if you're an established filmmaker, if you're a storyteller, if you're someone who's like, I have something to say, I feel like I've been hitting some roadblocks. I think the biggest thing that we need to do is to build community. And I'm really excited about this period in our industry, because if you look at the troubles that Netflix is undergoing, if you think about the corporate consolidation in terms of Viacom, CBS, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Discovery, thinking about Amazon acquiring MGM. We're in a moment of rapid consolidation and shifts. But that simultaneously what's emerging is the democratization of content creation and distribution. And this is where the industry has really had things in a chokehold over its history because Mm -hmm. the studios used to control the means of production and distribution. The Paramount Decrees came out in 1948, which basically said the studios needed to divest from distribution and exhibition so that they could not simultaneously make the content and then own all of the theaters in which that content was shown, that they had a monopoly in storytelling. So all of the Mm -hmm. studios had to sell off their theater chains, and those theater chains were then run by third parties. So that's when we get the rise of National Amusements, AMC, Regal, sort of all of the theater chains and that difference. That decree came out in 1948. Back in 2020, a judge ruled that the Paramount Decree no longer needed to stand and that that was being removed. So now we're moving back into a period of consolidation where it's like, again, whatever the future of theatrical is, TBD. Like we don't know Mm -hmm. where it's going. Now all of the studios own their own distribution platforms. That's what Disney Plus is. That's what Paramount Plus is. That's what Apple TV Plus is. Like that's what all of that is. It is production entities that are controlling the means of production, also controlling the means of distribution. But their power is waning because we have YouTube, because we have TikTok, 
because we have Instagram, because we have Twitter and Vimeo. And because we're now in a place, again, Patreon, OnlyFans, like all of these are democratized platforms for content distribution. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we all have a studio in our pocket. The computing power of what an iPhone can do, you know, of what you can do on a MacBook Pro, you can shoot, edit, score, and distribute your own films, your own content, whatever the length, on your own. What the studios have, you know, have had a chokehold on is drawing attention and eyes. But again, I think they see that that power is waning, which is why Hollywood collectively invested $1.7 billion into Quibi. Remember, the premise of Quibi was people are watching short form content. Let's make short form content, but at premium prices with establishment Hollywood stars that they recognize. We all know how Quibi went. Mm -hmm. And so... What I think that indicates is Hollywood recognizes that its power is waning in the ways that it has existed in the last century. Because right now, and we reached this point about a decade ago, and I remember seeing the studies. So Q scores are basically the ratings which indicate a celebrity's popularity sort of in pop culture. For a long time, the legacy movie stars like Tom Cruise, Will Smith, sort of various other folks had very high Q scores. About a decade ago, the Q scores of YouTube influencers started to match and surpass the Q scores of traditional movie stars. Oh, wow. And so now if we think about this fact, it's very interesting. You know, my brother made a comment. He's like, a couple years ago, I was watching an NBA finals game and Chadwick Boseman, you know, rest in peace, was on the floor. And then they had some TikTok stars come out and do a dance. And he was like, I was watching this. And I was like, Chadwick Boseman, the star of Black Panther and 42 and all these other movies is on... TV with these TikTok stars. Like, what is this moment? And so if we think about the rise of influencers, Mm -hmm. people who are able to peddle influence, have followers, like that's what celebrity was. That was leveraging celebrity across endorsements, across all of this. Hollywood doesn't control TikTok stars. Agencies are Mm -hmm. signing TikTok stars. Agencies are signing Twitch streamers. Agencies are signing YouTube stars. Mm -hmm. But Hollywood is not controlling that. The control of content creation has shifted back to the people or has shifted to the people in a way that has never existed in our industry. And so I think there's an immense opportunity for anyone who is a storyteller to build a community of their peers, to create their own material and to put it out into the world. And if you build your audience, Hollywood will come knocking. If we think about Issa Rae and her web series, Misadventures of an Awkward Black Girl. Mm hmm. Issa Rae would not have Insecure. She would not have her mega deal with Warner Brothers Discovery if not for Misadventures of an Awkward Black Girl. That is something that she made with a couple of friends. That is something that she did herself. And once she showed that there was an audience of young, particularly young black women who wanted to see themselves reflected, then HBO was like, "Mm, so tell us more about what you've been up to. And like, would you like to come do something with us? And so I think that's what's really exciting in this moment where I'm no longer waiting for any of these institutions to save us. And quite frankly, I'm no longer interested in trying to save these institutions. These are institutions that have been built to exclude us. And no Mm -hmm. one in the last century that our industry has existed has really taken the type of aggressive intervention that we've seen with the production code in the 1920s and that we've seen with the Golden Globes in the 2020s. And so I'm saying in this entire century, If y'all aren't going to get your act together, I'm not going to tell you how to save your dying business. And everyone's in a tizzy right now. The pivot to (laughs) streaming and we're going to build out streaming. And what if streaming doesn't work? And oh, no, maybe we'll build short form content creation. It's like I'm very excited because it feels like we're entering into a space where, again, if you have a compelling story, if you're tapping into something authentic, there is a way for you to find your audience and to connect with your people. And in a lot of ways to bypass and circumvent the Hollywood system. And so that I think is a big thing is like, it's up to us to build community. It's up to us to support each other. It's up to us to like make as much as possible. It is why we are doing this podcast as a do it yourself exercise and saying, we are excited for the folks that are going to want to join what we are doing and help us. But like, we're not waiting for anyone to give us money or give us the okay to talk about these things because we will die waiting. And I think that's the thing is like, I am not prepared to die waiting for these legacy institutions to recognize that there are people who have stories to tell that are worthwhile for us all to hear, that they have been excluding for this last century. 
So that's, that's a little bit of my, my optimism <laughs> in terms of what we can do going forward. Yes, um, absolutely. I love that so much. And I, I feel inspired just listening to that. And I really hope that our listeners are also feeling that way because those are real things that we could do ourselves, right? And anyone can do that. We can all put something on YouTube if you wanted to. We could all write the stories that we want to write and not be afraid of doing it. And I think people will pay attention to that. And I think that's really very exciting. That being said, do you have any last, because this is called film philosophy, do you have any last philosophical musings or inspiring thoughts that you can leave our listeners? I think the next century of storytelling is going to look vastly different than the last century. I think the ways in which people are interacting with moving images and sound, we're going through what feels to me like a quantum shift. I know a lot of people have feelings about TikTok. I find TikTok fascinating. I have not made a TikTok yet. I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> but it feels to me an evolution of interactivity and of storytelling and of content creation. Because the endless mm -hmm. remixing that can exist in TikTok, where I'm taking the sound from your video and putting my own video on top of it, or I'm stitching a video of yours and responding in kind, there's an explosion mm. of creativity that I think is happening. And the sophistication of audiences is growing because for younger audiences who are consuming, they say the average TikTok user consumes 24 hours of content on TikTok a month. That is one day out of every month that is spent on TikTok. And again, wow. we can talk about how these social media companies, these platforms are designed, how the algorithm works, how they hit the pleasure centers of our brain and release small spurts of dopamine and how we're mm -hmm. basically like hamsters on the wheel, <laughs> constantly refreshing and swiping. But all of that said, when we think about viewers who are able to interact with sound, image, and text on screen in ways that we haven't really seen before, I'm really excited to see what type of stories this TikTok generation is able to consume and fluent in consuming in this next decade. And I think there's a lot of creative possibility when we think about working in the audio space, when we think about multi-platform storytelling in terms of do you build a world that exists in the audio space first and then has companion mm -hmm. short films that are released? Or do you build out a film world that then also exists textually? And so this idea of everyone is trying to build out universes. We've got the Star Wars universe. We've got the Marvel universe. We've got the DC, you know, extended, you know, universe. Mm -hmm. This idea of the ways in which we can really play with new forms of storytelling and new ways of getting these ideas out, given, I think, the fluency that so many storytellers or so many consumers are becoming exposed to. So it's a difficult moment in the industry. There's a lot of contraction. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of layoffs. There's a lot of uncertainty. But in some ways, I would encourage people to think it's like, yo, the Dons are dying, like the heads of the <laughs> mafia families are dying and there's a power vacuum. And we may not have the five families again in the way that we did when it was Fox and Paramount and Warner Brothers and Sony and Universal. Like we may not have the heads of the five families like, oh, now there's Netflix. OK, now there's Amazon. Now there's Apple. There's there's a splintering. But I think mm -hmm. the rod, like if we think about what a studio will look like in the next 10, 15 years. I'm very excited by things that we once believed unimaginable and the ways in which we believe, well, we need to get buy-in from these traditional stakeholders. I think that's going to change. And I think we can precipitate that change by, again, rooting ourselves in authentic storytelling and making sure that what we create is emotionally mm -hmm. resonant. Because like, yes, am I excited for the Chippendale Rescue Rangers? Don't call it a reboot, call it a comeback, new movie that just dropped on Disney Plus today. Sure, because it hits something in nostalgia. <laughs> but like, yeah. there's only so long that an endless cycle of reboots and remakes can exist. And I think that's the piece where audiences are becoming more and more conditioned to authenticity. Because some people would rather hear an authentic five-minute YouTube video from a content creator that they have grown to trust and like than something that has been endlessly focus grouped and tested and run through the marketing department and then packaged in a very shiny way. And I think we're mm -hmm. going to continue to see a drop off where it's like Hollywood will continue to flounder if it does not prioritize creating emotionally resonant and authentic storytelling. And I think given the worldwide crises that are unfolding in this moment, the possibility that storytellers have to impact the world and how we see ourselves 
is perhaps at the highest point that it has ever been. There is historic distrust in the news media. There is historic distrust in politicians. Like there's historic distrust in so many things. But I think when you interact with a piece of art that you feel is true, you may not know why it struck you. It may take you a couple of days to unpack what it did to you, but you can feel it when it is real and when it is not driven by Mm -hmm. a commercial or financial incentive or we're trying to pillage our IP library so that we can add titles to our streaming service so that we can steal subscribers from Netflix. Like that's so much of the content that we're witnessing right now. And again, am I excited Mm -hmm. for the Obi-Wan series? Sure. But (laughs) at a certain point in time, I think that's going to peter out. And so Mm -hmm. it just feels like a really exciting moment. It's like whenever there is a power, whenever there is a changeover, there's an opportunity for new energy and new voices in the mix. And I'm very excited by what that will look like. Yes. Yay. Thank you so much, Andrew. So well said. I could listen to you forever. Unfortunately, we only have an hour on this podcast. (laughs) And I just want to thank you so much for all your wisdom and your knowledge and your passion. Thank you. As you may be able to tell, there's all sorts of things that I love talking about within this realm. We could go on (laughs) for a long time and we'll put some, you know, resources and some read-alongs for any of the things that we've talked about, the production code, the Paramount Decree, sort of all of this as further education. But thank you for having me. Thank you for, you know, having this conversation. Thank you for letting me ramble at times. This was really a joy. And I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for this project and what we're going to continue talking about on this podcast. Same, same. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Hey. So that's it. Our website is filmphilosophy.com. That's film and then philosophy with an F.com. And again, our website will have educational resources like Andrew had mentioned. Our contact info in case you want to ask any questions and follow up is filmphilosophy.tme at gmail.com. And we encourage you to send us audio messages by email so that we can play it back on our podcast. And if you're all shy, that's all good too. Just send us a simple email. And this is Film Philosophy, and we'll see you next time. Hey. 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 Yeah.